0: Good morning! Uh, It is not the first week of Advent, it's actually the Tuesday after the first week of Advent, but the recording didn't work on Sunday and it's my fault. So, I am recording Sunday's sermon again, uh, for those of you that weren't able to be here. And uh, there's some things that you can't see here, uh, watching this online. There's a wreath right in front of me here, on the table in front of the pulpit. And I got to tell you about that because um, this is this is an Advent wreath, and we are now officially in the season uh, season of Advent. Now, lighting candles on an Advent wreath—that's not something that we have done as a church, that I can remember. Uh, it's celebrating Advent in one way or another has been going on for at least fifteen hundred years. So we're not exactly making new ground or covering any new territory. And uh, for whatever reason, human beings. Uh, Mark special occasions with fire. Uh, You've got Christmas lights, which used to be candles, of course. Birthday candles that you blow out on the cake. There's bonfires. There's barbecues. There's fireworks on the 4th of July. And if you're from England, you have November 5th, where you burn the effigy of a 17th century terrorist. Um, So holidays are strange. But uh, we just love lighting fires. That's just something that people do. So we're, we're marking time with candles. On Sunday, we lit the first... Candle marking the first week of Advent, um, and a candle just has a special way of catching your attention, of catching your eye, and perhaps getting your focus off of the tyranny of the urgent onto something, uh, something further than just eighteen inches in front of your face. Um, and each week, what we're going to do on Sunday mornings is we'll light another candle, one for the four weeks of Advent. On the f- there's uh, a fifth candle, usually lit on Christmas Eve, that we will light on Christmas morning. Uh, Another reason you want to be here in person, rather than watching this online, like you're doing right now, uh, is that on Sunday, when I tried to light the candle, I dropped the match. The match broke, actually, and I burned a hole through the tablecloth. So that's the kind of fun you can expect when you come on Sunday mornings, and you should really be here. But uh, historically, the first week of Advent is set aside to, uh, to focus on hope. Hope is the theme that we gather around on the first week of Advent. And uh, today we recognize the cause of our hope, Jesus Christ, the value of hope, and attempt with the help of the Holy Spirit to cultivate a godly hope for Christ, the fulfillment of all our hopes. Um, So we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. You can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to look at uh, four Old Testament prophecies that Matthew cites in the first three chapters of his gospel. Matthew likes the prophets. Matthew is diligent to show Jesus as the fulfillment of all the hopes of all those that have come before Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets. He's, he's quick to show when he tells Jesus' story that those promises are being fulfilled in Jesus. Now Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, which is a fitting place to be not only because today is the first Sunday of Advent, but it's also the first Sunday of the Christian calendar, so I get to wish you a happy new year. I like the idea of thinking of the new year being squished between Thanksgiving and Christmas, because new things are supposed to be about hope and expectation, and January, let's be honest, can be something of a letdown sometimes. So if you've ever felt that way, welcome to the church calendar. It's better. Happy new year. And we are attempting now on the first Sunday of the Christian year to renew our hope in the coming of Christ. Just like the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to the coming of the Savior and just like children look forward to Christmas morning and all the excitement that comes with that, we recognize that there are hopes that are good and legitimate gifts of God. That hope itself is a legitimate gift of God and in, and we are intentionally entering into these hopes, knowing that God has given us himself to look forward to. He has actually created the concept of looking forward to something. And certainly looking forward to something, that's not a comprehensive definition of hope, but it's certainly something that's included in the larger category. So the first week of Advent, we set aside time to focus on hope and develop a godly hope in our hearts. Now I said that God invented the concept. He he created us to hope for him. He he created our hearts with the capacity of hope. And that that may come as a surprise to some because we usually or oftentimes equate Christian hope with the idea that things are terrible and then someday they won't be. And and certainly there's an element of of that that we're hoping for. We're hoping for Jesus to put things right and we'll talk about that near the end of today's sermon. But if that's all that hope is, then really the fall is more responsible for hope than redemption is. And I would suggest that that hope has roots that are even deeper than the fall in Eden. I think hope in Scripture is more than a child with a broken toy coming to an adult saying, Fix it, please. There's more to hope than that. And we even see that in Scripture in the creation week. Before we read about a serpent or or uh, the, the fall of man... We read that God created fruit trees that would bear in their season. Every gardener knows about hope. And despair as well. But we, we plant seeds in hope. And gardeners are not hoping for a time when gardens are no more. They're hoping for a time when gardens are as they should as are as they should be. They're hoping for a time when their labors are fulfilled. Hope was built into the fabric of creation. And after the fall, of course, it took on a new flavor. We're not just hoping for you know, harvest, we're hoping for redemption. Immediately after the first correction, the first act of justice against sin, there comes a promise to undo that sin, and that's what we're hoping for. The seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3 gives hope of a new kind, and the patriarchs and the prophets lived in longing for the fulfillment of this hope. Abraham looked for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. The prophets desired to look into the things that they were speaking of only in shadows and metaphors. God's people continued to plant and water in hope. And then the hope of all nations came. Christ came. And now we're entering the picture. We're entering the history of redemption after he has come. And... and And just as there was a hope that existed before the fall and after the fall, now, after the fulfillment of the desire of nations in every heart, there is still a godly hope that we enter into. Actually, there are two hopes, at least. We await for the second coming in a similar way in which they awaited the first. We await the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we also hope for His presence today. We enter into the hope of the Old Testament prophets who wanted a future Savior, yes, but you can't read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or any of the prophets and miss the fact that what they wanted, what they hoped for, was the presence of God with His people right now. They wanted God in their own lives for their own generation. And we want the same thing. So let's go to the prophets that Matthew cites and see what they were looking forward to and follow them into their hope. If you were just to scan the pages of your Bible, you'd probably notice which verses we're going to look to. Um, most Bibles, Old Testament citations of the New Testament are indented a little different, or they're, you know, maybe in, in italics or something like that. So you can see that uh, chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew, chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 3, are all citations of other authors, namely Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, and then Isaiah again. So let's start with the first one there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. This is a quotation from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This verse really packs a punch. Uh, There's two things being said, and it's hard to imagine fitting two more remarkable and astonishing truths into one short sentence. First, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. That's not normal. And, And Honestly, this would be astonishing even if you took away the miracle part. Even if you took away the the miraculous nature of the virgin birth, birth, uh, it would still be amazing because God giving children to people is an amazing method of changing the world. It's amazing that throughout the history of redemption, when God wants to do something important, He has a baby born. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samson, Samuel, He tells Jeremiah, when you were in the womb, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And you think, that's not very efficient. Maybe you should have picked someone already born if you wanted this job done in like a timely fashion. But God is patient. When he wants something done, he finds a mother and a father and gives them a child. And in this miracle of birth, you see again the divine gift of hope. Nine months of it, woven into the fabric of creation. It's a hope, not for an end of something only, but for a beginning of something. With the announcement of the birth of Jesus, prophesied 700 years before its occurrence by Isaiah, Matthew invites us into the hope for the beginning, uh, uh, into the, the joy and wonder of new baby smells and sounds. But before the birth, there's this astonishing bit of information. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. This is wonderful. It is weird. It is miraculous. And in a way, Jesus simultaneously embodies the most and least hoped for child ever to be born he was the one who every prophet was hoping for but the morning gabriel showed up to mary she was not hoping to be pregnant by that afternoon and this is certainly not the lesson of hope that advent shows us but it's some it's it's something that i couldn't help seeing god gives us hope and even the desires, the deepest desires of our hearts. And he does so in places we would never think to look. There is hope beyond hope for the people of God. When the angel shows up to Mary in Luke chapter 2, it's the first thing Mary wants to know. How will this be? I would have never thought to look for the desires of my heart here in this way. And then the answer that is given is that the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary, that the power of the Most High would overshadow her. The language the angel uses is tabernacle language. It's the Ark of the Covenant that was overshadowed with the presence of God. The Ark and the tabernacle were realizations of Israel's greatest glory. That God was with them. He was with them when the cloud was over the tabernacle, when the presence of God was on the mercy seat. The angel telling Mary she would have in her body the literal presence of God, he is telling her she is the fulfillment of tabernacle hopes, of all the hopes that the tabernacle and the temple fit into the hearts of Israel. John says the same thing about Jesus himself in John 1.14. He says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as you know, I'm sure, the word dwell is tabernacle. In taking on flesh, flesh, we might note, that was genetically derived from the flesh of Mary, Jesus was fulfilling the hope that the tabernacle and the temple instilled in the people of God, that he would dwell with his people. And of course, that's the second half of this verse we're looking at in Matthew. They shall call his name Emmanuel, Which means God with us. This is the hope. This is what we look forward to. This is what we sing. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. This intentional focus on hope is necessary for the people of God, not only because we sometimes have the tendency to be hopeless, but also because our hopes become skewed and corrupted and we hope for things that are not worthy of the name not worthy of the word, or at least we, we think that our small lowercase h hopes are on par with the one capital H hope of God being with us. This is what we're hoping for. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We pray, we plead, God be with us. And then we see in the face of Jesus the answer of this prayer. We see the promise God has made, I will be with you as yes and amen in Jesus. Christ is coming. This is our hope. He has promised to be with us even to the end of the age. This is our hope. He comes in unexpected ways. And as we see in the next passage that Matthew cites, he comes in unexpected, two unexpected places. The next prophecy that Matthew cites is from Micah chapter 5. And we read this in Matthew chapter, chapter 2, verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now in a bit, we're going to go to Mac- Micah chapter 5 and read the original and see that Matthew took some liberties that his high school English teacher probably wouldn't have appreciated in citing this prophecy. But now hopefully there's a little bit of last Sunday's sermon still running through your thoughts. Uh, When you see the word shepherd, there will come a ruler who will be a shepherd. Of course, this would remind any Jew of David, their shepherd king, and his, his best song, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. And in reading this prophecy... Uh, prophesied hundreds of years after David lived and died, the the uh, audience that Micah is addressing would have known that this is talking about another per- person, a fulfillment of David, someone who's coming like David uh, from Bethlehem, who, like David, would be a ruler, who, like David, would rule like a shepherd. But what's more, if you read the rest of this prophecies from Micah that Matthew only quotes in part, you would read this, His goings forth are from of old, from of everlasting. There's an eternal one who will be a shepherd for Israel. Micah and Matthew both know the truth of Psalm 23. It's the Lord that is the shepherd that's coming. Someone is coming from Bethlehem. Who will he be? It'll be the shepherd. There's a ruler coming from the smallest town in Judah, and this is what he's going to do. He's going to care for the sheep the way the Lord cares for his people. The hearts of men, whether they know it or not, hope and long for the presence of God, Emmanuel. But when, if we inspect that longing and look at that hope a little bit closer, we see that what we need, sometimes even what we want in this God with us, is exactly what David describes for us in the 23rd Psalm and what Micah alludes to in the prophet, in his prophecy. We need a shepherd. We need a shepherd because without him we strive and we want and we have ambitions and, and, and that are ungodly, and instead with a shepherd we say, I shall not want. We want the security to lay down in green pastures, the fulfillment of still waters. We want and desperately need a God who restores our souls. We, like lost sheep, need a shepherd to guide us through the valley of the shadow of death, and we need a God to deliver us from all our fears, whose rod and staff comfort us, who prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. We need a shepherd king who would anoint his sheep with the oil of the Holy Spirit, and we long for this. We hope for this kind of king who will give us the security of eternity, of of permanence, so we can say, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is our good shepherd, born of Mary in the little town of Bethlehem. Is our dwelling place, the one greater than the temple, the one who has taken on flesh and tabernacled with us. Now, a word about Bethlehem uh, and Micah's prophecy before we go on to the next one. The emphasis that Micah makes is in his prophecy is that Bethlehem is small. Matthew changes that prophecy a little bit, and it's kind of cool to see the way he does it. I'm going to read Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through 5. Micah says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. That's Micah. Now back in Matthew. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The end. That's it. This is obviously uh, kind of a paraphrase, not a direct quotation. But he also changes the meaning a bit, doesn't he? Micah says Bethlehem is the least, and Matthew says not anymore. And in this interpretive liberty that Matthew takes, we have another example of an unexpected hope. Bethlehem was a small town for most of the year. It would grow during the feasts because of its proximity to Jerusalem, but for the most part, it's small. It's a small rural village, and this is where Emmanuel, God with us, will come to be with his flock. Now, as most of you know, as you happen to live in a small, unassuming little town, if you want to do just about anything, you've got to go somewhere else. The small town people need to go into the bigger town to get the things they need. Not this time. Not this time. You don't travel to see the shepherd. The shepherd comes to you. Jesus Christ, our living hope, is God with us. God, the shepherd who will care for lost sheep like us. The God who doesn't despise the day of small things, or small places, or small people. Who gives hope when we aren't looking for it, in places we wouldn't dream of finding it. And that takes us to the next passage. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This prophecy, fulfilled in the event known as the slaughter of the innocents, takes the Christmas story in a decidedly tragic direction. King Herod, in a flash of jealous egomaniacal rage, hunts down those he perceives to be his enemies. In this case, that's babies, and he has them killed. In verse 16, it says, He sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under. Now, earlier I mentioned the wonderful way, the beautiful way, in which our patient and nurturing Father God seeks to change the world, or in the case of Christmas, literally save the world by having a baby born. In Herod's act of brutality, we recognize a demonic theme, a rebellion that Satan continues in to this day. Destroy innocent life. Kill the children. It is a direct attack on Christ's command to let the children come unto me. And the enemy knows it. If God will let heaven rejoice in the birth of a son, then Satan will slaughter sons. If God will bless a virgin or her older cousin, Elizabeth, with joy in pregnancy, then Satan will do what he can to make mothers mourn. In the words of a wise man, Satan is a punk. So what's that got to do with Christmas? Where's the hope for the mothers of Bethlehem? Once again, we must learn to expect hope to come in places unlooked for, hope beyond hope. We need to be reminded that it's the sick, it's the heart sick sometimes that need a physician. It's into the formless void that God says with authority, let there be light. Now think of this in terms of the questions that might be asked of the other prophecies we've covered. The virgin birth. Well, Christ is going to be born how? By whom? Her? Well, I didn't expect you to come that way, Lord. It's a bit of a scandal, but that's how he comes. Where will he be born? Bethlehem? Wait, what? In that town? I didn't expect that. The least among the tribes of Judah. And we didn't even talk about the manger. But it's that, that small, little town, the unknown place where, where the Lord says, that's where I want to be. And then you might ask, well, what's the mood going to be like in this town? Is it a nice place to grow up? Oh, what's that sound I hear? Lamentation. Weeping. Great mourning of mothers who refuse to be comforted. That's your hometown, Jesus? Is this where God is with us? In a world where tyrants murder children and parents bury their kids? Is that the place you have come to tabernacle? Yes, 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 and amen. God is with us. The shepherd leads us, even here. No matter how many times you read the verses that say Christ is near to the broken, heart, broken hearted, we don't expect the fullness of his nearness in moments as full of tragedy as this. When we read of the slaughter of the innocents and we ask, what does that have to do with Christmas? You can't be surprised anymore when the answer is everything has everything to do with Christmas. Because when we are declaring the coming of Christ, we are are declaring a rescue mission. We are recognizing Him as the fulfillment of every hope. We are standing on the eternal hope and declaring, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, far as the curse is found. And it is in cursed territory where the Messiah comes. What hope are we entering into as we look for the nearness of God? We are looking for a time when every tear is wiped away by the hand of God himself. By hoping for a real presence of a real redeemer, we are defying the infestation of the curse. We aren't just planting in hope, we're cursing the weeds. The first time the word hope shows up in the Bible, it's found on the lips of a woman who had outlived her son's and her husband, and changed her name to bitter. It's Naomi. She says that hope is something that she is without. She has no hope of having another husband or having more children. She calls herself Mara, which is which is really a a, um, a form of Mary. But you know how that story ends. Ruth has a son. And the friends of Naomi see that she has been restored to life. In Ruth 4.15 it says, And may he, her grandson, be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. They even said "There there is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David, the shepherd king. When Matthew cites this passage from Jeremiah, he does so with a lot more precision than he used in citing Micah, but he still cuts the prophecy short. If you were to read from Jeremiah 31, you would see that, that after verse 15, which cites Matthew, uh, which Matthew cites, excuse me, uh, Jeremiah 31, 16 says, Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord. Who is he speaking to here? The ones who cannot be comforted. He says there is hope in your future. Even these, especially these, are the ones to whom Christ comes. And then later in the same chapter, Jeremiah 31, 25, he says, For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. After these words, which were given to Jeremiah in his sleep, Jeremiah says, After this I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. And the rest of the chapter, the rest of Jeremiah 31, is the prophecy of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is what we're hoping for, the new covenant. We have one more verse from Matthew that I want to show you. In Matthew 3, we are introduced to John the Baptist, who is the last of the old covenant prophets, and as such, a fitting end to a sermon on hope this first week of Advent. The prophecy that Matthew includes about John is this. Matthew 3, verse 2. It says, For this is he who spoke by the prophet Isaiah saying, in verse 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. The voice of mourning isn't the loudest voice. The The voice of mourning doesn't get the last word. The voice that was heard in Ramah would give way to the voice in the wilderness, the one who announces the coming of the king, the one who is hoped for. He's coming the Lord is coming to dwell with his broken hearted people. The Lord, Emmanuel, God with us, the good shepherd of his people and the comforter of broken hearts is coming to make his dwelling with you. He is coming to tabernacle in your emptiness, in your small town, in your grief to give you hope. The King is coming. One thing we see about the nature of hope in John the Baptist is that rather than this being merely a good feeling about the future or an idea that helps us cope with darkness, it is a call to prepare. We'll talk more about this uh, the second Sunday in Advent when we talk about faith, which is the substance of these things hoped for. But as we observe the hope of those who came before Christ, we see that their hope demanded that they speak of certain things and live a certain way because they were hoping for the Messiah. They preached about the Messiah. The hope of God near us means we live like he's coming to our house. When we know he's the one that's coming towards us, we clear out all the roads. We we make his path straight. We we remove all the obstacles for us to receive him. Let every heart prepare him room, right? So let us cultivate hope in our hearts, for the presence of our healer, for the coming of our King, for the realization of His presence, for the wiping away of every tear, and the time of harvesting what we have planted. Those of you who have reason to rejoice, rejoice in hope. Those of you who mourn, mourn, but not without hope. God has come to dwell with His people. God has come to shepherd His people. Let us prepare the way of the Lord in the confident, hope of his coming. We ask these things in Jesus' name.